0: Well, third week, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this beautiful time in your creation, and we're grateful for the food we just had, good fellowship. Thank you for the, the short hour we have to look at your word. Thank you for the crows. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're looking at, like we did last week, two chapters because they're very short chapters here in 1 Timothy, uh, we moved through some what a lot of moderns think are dicey passages last week that said things that our culture doesn't deal well with, but you have to choose. What did Bob Dylan say? you got to serve somebody. So in chapter 4, he... he uh, um, has been trying to lay out for Timothy a very personal letter for how he is to live and how he is to train the church to live. Beneficial for us. Um, he says that at the end of the reading we had last week where he said, uh, <laughs> I've written to you, let's see if I can not misquote it by actually looking at it, and um, I'm writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's the instruction to Timothy that he is passing on things that will help us all learn what to behave about. Now, recently we've had some, you might say, some um, uh, bumps from the world, we'll just call them, where the world has decided it was going to make... um, new moralities, and Christians have all sorts of reactions. Some are caving. Drew, if you want some notes, they're right down here. Um, some are creating church documents where they take a stand, both morally and emotionally, and some are actually changing their bylaws to make sure that they don't get trapped by um, Caesar in some way. But the idea behind Paul's letter to Timothy has been, earlier in the book, that we would learn to live quiet lives, peaceable lives. And it's not that we don't have either opinions, or we don't believe things are evil. But you have to have some path to go from, and this is a standard worldly Uh, expression of certain temperaments. What's the phrase? You've seen it online. Um, Someone's sitting at a computer. I I, I can't come to bed, honey. Someone's wrong on the internet. You know, that when you think you have been gifted with God's view of this error, you become Alexander the Corrector, and you're out there uh, making things right, making the world safe for democracy, Christianity, Whatever it is. Now, that's not an automatic. Um, The Lord had completely, 100%, from what I gather, correct opinions. And he didn't spend all of his free time stopping every guy on the street to correct everything from his gig line to his walk to his morality. It seems that the world is just like this, and we notice it when the wicked start to get a moral sense of what they're about, what they want us to do. I saw a great new bumper sticker. You know that Coexist bumper sticker? Now it's a rainbow background, and they've done it to say the word comply. (laughs) That's what their notions, well, that that was a joke about them. They don't realize that, nor do we realize it about ourselves. We were told when we looked at this in church on Sunday, not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of this world, for then we'd have to leave the world. We're not here to judge the world. The world is judged. They're wrong. They're evil. We know that. But there are warnings about how this more, what I would like to call this more immediate Christianity, what it has to look out for. Just because you're more of an existentialist or more of an immediate Christian, more of a um, self-concerned, your neighbor and your circumstance wanting to be like Christ, doesn't mean you don't recognize the handwriting on the wall. Now the Spirit, it says here in chapter 4, verse 1, expressly says that in later times, I guess that would be us. Some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared. My father, when I was little, would read through that verse and stop there and say, these people sound awful. Deceitful spirits, demonic doctrine... Pretentious liars with a seared conscience. Don't have any clue they're they're that evil. And Christians buy in it. And so some will depart from the faith by giving heed. They listen to these awful, awful doctrines. Now, at that point, you go know, I, I don't know if you remember from, some of you are old enough to remember, Anton Zanzor LeVay. Um... He was the high priest of Satan in uh, California. Hey, he's a schlock. Yeah, he's a con. But we don't expect that Christians on the way to church one morning with their big Bible under their arm, they see this horned being off to the side, whispering, let's go worship Satan this morning. Oh, my gosh. I am I am easily deceived. Very easily deceived. <laughs> now, give, the, give the stupid believer some credit. They're, they're not that stupid. Just like they won't sin, like you wave a bottle of vodka under their nose and they say, Oh yeah, okay, let's get drunk. It's deceitfulness. But the doctrines are demonic, and they're liars who don't know what they're about. Now listen to what they're about. Who forbid marriage, (coughs) and enjoin abstinence from foods, which I hear regularly on the internet from every Christian wife this side of the Mississippi that somehow this is going to kill all of our children, whatever it is. I was reading up on the shakers. They're a nut, bunch of nut jobs. There's not about three left, I think, three shakers left. Well, because they, they forbid sex and marriage, which kind of cuts down on the conversion rate, both interest of people in the group and uh, uh, growing naturally and organically. So they they were from, you know, late Quaker period, uh, uh, 1600s. And um, it was founded by, we covered this last week, a woman uh, who had it in her mind that original sin was sex between Adam and Eve. That was what, what original sin was. Pretty consistent with Augustine and some of the others. But she took it to the next level. But of course, Christians wouldn't be about that this forbidding of marriage. You could take it anything from a wacky group like that. I knew a group in California, the Christ family, led by, conveniently, the name, guy named Paul Christ. And he ended up killing himself, but they forbade marriage, and forbade leather. They didn't have any leather sandals or belts. Smoked a lot of cigarettes. Um, and didn't have sexual relations. I mean, hippies of the worst sort um, but um, So you get everything from wild like that where you can say, oh yeah, I can imagine demons involved. But any time you start to take it, it's anyone who starts to believe they can run God's creation better than God had run it. God has given us these things. Well, it says this in the next verse. Well, the end of verse 3. Who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created marriage and food for you to enjoy. That's why it's created. And so when someone steps in with their better idea that you shouldn't eat pork, you shouldn't eat GMO foods, you shouldn't eat whatever you could you don't have to eat what you don't want to eat. But as soon as you think that it is unclean that might state, you could you could change your diet because you want to feel better. But people aren't just in the business of feeling better. They're interested in making other people comply that somehow their attitudes, their uh, their unspirituality, their fits of rage, all of them are caused by too much whatever. You've heard every mother say, "Oh, he had some sugar." (laughs) No, you're just a lousy parent. (laughs) We don't. We don't want to say that. They don't come up and say, "He's running amok, I'm a lousy parent. That's what it is. They're a lousy parent. Kid's running amok. We want to have. We want to have the nature of things that we can change by fiat or by church decision. Create a, a, a different, a better, a path of spirituality. And people like that kind of path of spirituality, but this is Paul warning you that you're an idiot and they are demonic. These are pretentious liars who are saying, which you will find out in about 20 years, that everything they're saying to you now, then no one will apologize. No one will say they're sorry for ruining your diet. But. They will find out that they're going to boss you around in a different way in 20 years. Because there will be a new crop of cult leaders, a new crop of experts. from. Um, and, I, and Tragically, I don't mind if the world does it. They do all sorts of numbskulled things. When it happens in the church, Paul is telling Timothy, warning him about this coming. He says, for everything created by God is good. This is verse 4. Everything created by God is good. And nothing in case you wanted it bracketed by the other word from the other end, everything is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, I don't know if any of you hold strange dietary views, It didn't seem like it going through the buffet line. But uh, I am following verse 6. If you put these instructions before the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Ta-da! Nourished in the words of the faith and the good doctrine which you have followed. Now there's something aside from this, other than just the idea of forbidding marriage and enjoining abstinence from certain foods. One is, of course, that's obviously wrong. People like to think of Paul as sort of anti-marriage. He didn't get married, but he understood the creation normalcy of it that God made, made it. And he also is a very strong uh, um, uh, teacher of the loving act of the Christian to give up food offered to idols, say, if it would cause the stumbling of another brother. We have categories where I couldn't consecrate This food that I have the liberty to eat, something offered to an idol, that I have the liberty to eat, but I don't get to if it stumbles my brother. I couldn't set that before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to insult this guy's conscience, lead him into doing the same thing, but destroying him. I'm not walking in love. So Paul has, he's a big advocate of our liberty. He's a big advocate of marriage um, for 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 the average Christian. But there's something else going on here as well. One is that these are not church issues. What you eat and who you sleep with are not church issues, we hope. These are about you. These are the instruction that's coming from the apostle to the apostolic delegate in Ephesus, Timothy, for him to pass on being a good minister is to keep the individual free from being constrained in marriage and being constrained in his diet by pretentious liars. He doesn't say, hey, have you thought about creating a program for city outreach? Now, there's nothing wrong with a program for city outreach. But it's really, that should be the last thing on your mind bringing another Christian musician to town for a big concert. So, uh, you like that kind of music. The big thing on your mind is to have your Christianity be so absolutely and immediately, and I think in terms of immediacy, like imminence, uh, like the right now of it, that right now, that which is in front of me is my Christianity. The food that is set before me, when Paul tells you in, I think it's Corinthians, might be Romans, that if anybody set something in front of him, a non-believer just set something without asking, he would eat it, he would thank God for it and eat it. it was just a, he wouldn't object on the ground of his conscience. His immediate Christianity is what we are, we are concerned with finding for ourselves. Now, it's amazing that after 2,000 years, Christians still haven't figured out that the New Covenant doesn't include food laws. I give you the side here from Christ, Mark 7. Um, It's a long bit, but I even trimmed some out. But I I wanted to start back with verse 6 here on the right-hand side. And he said to them, this is Jesus. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. And that's how we get caught up in these bizarre new additions, restrictions, and again, you'll notice that false teachers can't give us more freedom than we have. They restrict us from having what God gave us. But then in verse 14, he says, And he called the people to him. He had that section about dedicating something to the Lord so you wouldn't have to honor your father and mother. So I trimmed that out. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Hear me. There is nothing outside a man Which by going into him can defile him. But the things which come out of a man are what defile him. Seems like Paul and Christ on the same page here. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? There's a degree of stupid that we have to have trimmed off of us, possibly every century. Every generation, we go through this. Uh, you mean... Remember that scene? Some of you are old enough to remember this, even as a movie. Um, it's in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. When he's trying to leave the guards in the room with the sun. And, no, we're going with you. The degree of stupid that... He, you're trying to hard to. Rest. That's how he's speaking to them. Are you, then, without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then turns to poo? Or something like that, and so passes on. Parenthetically, bolded for your convenience, thus he declared all foods, clean. If I catch any one of you ever saying to another Christian that they shouldn't eat this because it's not something we as Christians should do, I will slap you. <laughs> I'll apologize, and I'll have to confess it, but, but uh, after this, when we're told these are doctrines of demons, I don't mind if you say, hey, I've cut back on my what are they what are they cut back on? People who care. Carbs. Carbs. I don't even know what a carb is. I really don't know what a carb is. People keep saying this word around me. It's like adjective. I don't know what an adjective is. It's good to be stupid in some cases. Now the the idea that if that if you want to have your diet be X because you just feel healthier. Great. Knock yourself out. But as soon as it's tied to the faith in any way, I'm coming after you or I'm sending somebody bigger than me. We have marines here we can can send. And he said, what comes out of a man is what defiles a man for what from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a man. Not all, These are, again, immediate instructions. They're about you. They're about me. They're not about the church. They're not about creating a, a special way of being that we all have to get on, on board with and do it with some sort of church-wide intention. Just do it. Thank God for what he gave you. Thank God for your marriage. Thank God for your... Food, that's why we thank God before we eat. Not all the time. In restaurants, it's like praying on a street corner. But um, at home, I would think you'd be thankful. So bless the food. Thank God for it. Now, verse 7 says, have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. We're back in chapter 4 of Timothy. Now that's what's coming out of this, godless and silly myths. And that's why you're going to find them changing in the course of a decade. Train yourself in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself. He's telling Timothy, attend to you in this. One of the more powerful things you could advise a person who's looking to minister to other people is get them to attend to themselves. If you worked out, some of you do that. It's got some value. Some translations say little value. I wish my translation did. But it says some value. But it doesn't have the value that of the present life and the life to come that godliness will have. I was talking to someone with my wife, maybe I was just talking to my dad, I was getting them up yesterday, and I think we were on this subject, about people not spending the time getting themselves to where their reactions, their thoughts, and their way of life is that that Christ expects. That's training in godliness. It is taking on God's view of the world. With God's view of the world really held, if that's your faith, your reactions emotionally will be his reactions. Because emotions are always the reaction of regular reality when it hits somebody's views of the world. You're depressed, you're angry, you're all sorts of whatever. It's because not because reality is different for you. It's just that you're different than the other people and reality hits you that way. Take on the Lord's impression of the world. Know what he thinks and think that way. You have for the present life and the life to come a great promise. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. That's just like that one that says if you lay these things you'll be a good minister. Now okay, now this is just my saying it. It's like Lord saying verily verily. Truly truly. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Good verse for the Arminian, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, I'm not an Arminian, but I believe that Jesus died for everyone. He is the Savior of all men, and especially those who have come to believe in Christ. But that's not what Paul's writing the verse for. He wasn't producing a handy-proof text so that Evan's theology can have a, ple- you know, a pleasant moment. He's talking between himself and another Christian brother. He said, this is what we're about, you and I, Timothy. We toil and strive because our hope is in the living God. I want you to think more in terms, as you listen to all these phrasings that are their Bible talk, uh, they sound devout. Um, and sometimes they hold that devout quality because we churchify them. We, we think in terms of them as constitutional statements for the church today. Not, uh, this is the way I look at things. Paul, Timothy, and I look at things this way. This is what we work for. Because we have our hopes set on the living God. Because he's the savior of all men. Remember he told you that earlier in the book when he talked about praying for those who were in authority over us? Chapter somewhere. It was in chapter uh, 2 that we pray for everybody in authority because God desires, acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he was asking them to pray for the quietness of life, that that what God could do in you, what God could make in you, would be made. For this end we toil and strive, command and teach these things. Now it lets you know already just a few things I dragged out. uh, They are gifts to you as a person. These marriage, food—they are gifts to you as a person. The life is a gift to you as a person, and the instructions are to you in the immediacy of your response to you as a person. If we were able to take our lives, each one of us singly, severally, and have each one of us experience that personal. Walk that responded to this, we'd have a wonderful body of believers. But to begin with, let's be thankful for these things. Consecrating the things that we're given. I think we're a pretty good church, people I know anyway. People who come to Big House uh, enjoy stuff. We like having stuff. We like having good food. We like having good fellowship. We like having beautiful art. We like having stuff. And we like thanking God for it. We also don't want to be godless and silly. We want our life to be centered on growing in grace. And it's very easy when people stop feeling the grace of God, just say, from their conversion. Their life starts to dry up. I've, I've been dealing with this a lot lately. I may have mentioned lately, I've been mentioning it to various people that all Christianity, that what God shines on has a shadow. You have a life, the light of God shines on you and you cast a shadow. When you notice your shadow, that's all church activity, Christian culture. As your walk with Christ, your enjoyment of the light becomes dimmer, you start getting fixated on the shadow. So you start keeping special days in the church calendar. So you start eating special meals, following certain dietary constructs, having a particular ritual that you do when you do something or other. Or as Paul says, you keep days, seasons, and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. For these things are the shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, all of us get to, you know, a place maybe in our Christian life when Christendom starts to we want to pick the best brand, the best most interesting shadow. I would recommend that you go find the light again so you don't notice the shadow you cast anymore. If the if the Lord is at you might say, if you want to stretch the metaphor, if it's noon in your life, you're not looking at the shadow. I was telling my dad yesterday morning that I remember driving west on a family vacation uh, late in the day. We were getting into Colorado, and I was watching the shadow of the car along the hills in the distance, you know, as the late sun would cast it. And the shadow of the car I was in was more interesting to me than the car I was in going to Colorado. I forgot that I was going to Colorado. You can get caught up in shadows. These things, if they're not kept immediate, if they are allowed to become corporate, if they're not individual, the only thing a corporate Christianity can give you, not corporate like CEOs and CFOs, things like that, but corporate as in a group, they can only offer you a cultural construct and a shadow. They can't make your godliness for you. They cannot grace you in any way. So he tells them to command and teach these things. It says in Colossians here on the right-hand side, Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? And listen, just like with the doctrines of demons, just like with the pretensions of liars, just like with the deceitful spirits, it sounds bad. It sounds like a girl who came to your church wearing fishnet stockings and had a tattoo. Probably some piercings. Or a guy with a knit cap on. You know, it's 104. A guy walking by my house with a knit cap on. That's devotion. That's the kind of worldliness, but that's not the kind of worldliness we have here. Belonging to the world is dealing with life by rules. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things which all perish as they used according to human precepts and doctrines. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Remember the guy lying to you, the pretentious liar? He's got to have some leverage under his lie. And what do you think, because you're kind of Gnostic yourself, that you think somehow giving up stuff in the world is more righteous than having stuff? If you have a rich man and a poor man, who's more righteous? It'll be the poor man in your eyes. Because you've been trained to think that. Now, I am not, as you know, health and wealth. I don't have a big house, but I have to share it. Now... I'm not health and wealth. I don't believe the rich are what God wants every Christian to be. But I also don't believe the poor are what God, what God wants all people to be. I don't want to think like a human being about this. It's human precepts and human doctrines with only an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion. Because what is more? Lewis talks about of it in uh, Weight of Glory, where he mentions that uh, you ask uh, the modern man, what is the chief virtue? And they'll say un- unselfishness. And you ask the ancient what the chief virtue was, he would say love. And our minds have been slowly moved by the Gnostics into somehow doing without is more of a righteousness than doing something for someone. That somehow denying yourself marriage, foods, whatever it is, self-abasement makes ourselves we are worms and no men, we've got to We've got to somehow throw ashes in the sky and rend our garments. Severity to the body. Not let it get away with anything. Can't let... Because so many people in Christian history have believed that original sin was the concupiscence between men and women, which is a nice way of saying the nasty. Okay? They thought it was what God had given them. So denying is important. Not having is important. And it looks like wisdom to us because we're worldly. We're not acting like Christians. But they are, look at this, but they are of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. That's what St. Paul says. It will not help you be a better Christian at all. So why are you doing it? Well, because I'm listening to pretentious liars. So what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be, Timothy is supposed to be commanding, and that's why I'm trying to say it with your, like verve, you know, hand gestures. And teach these things. Threaten you physically. Let no one despise your youth. But look at look at what he is told to do. I still like because the consistency is nice. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct. In love, in faith, in purity. Timothy has got to be, once again, conscious of what God is trying to do in Timothy. Because what God is trying to do in you is a far better teaching facility. When it says to elders, um, I think in Peter, uh, not as one domineering over the flock, but setting an example. Too many pastors and teachers want to only give the command and lord it over people and say, until you do this, you know, you got you you're not you're not good. What he's supposed to do is say, this is what is real Christianity, and the teachers are supposed to live it. Set yourself an example. Especially with Timothy being a young guy, most of you are young. Being a young guy, would be easier for people to go, yeah, he's got big opinions about what he's teaching and commanding, but, you know, when he's lived in Christianity as long as I have, you ever been told that? You know, well, you're young, you know, you haven't been disillusioned yet. Uh, That Christian joy will settle itself out into, you know, panicked anxiety. (laughs) No, even as the young believer or the old believer, we're concentrating on building the life we have, the hope we have in our Lord who is the Savior of all men, building the uh, uh, the kind of life that accepts the blessings, accepts the goods. You command, you teach, you example. And then it says, till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. Cool. Be involved in what it is, what is central to our growth, our immediate growth, our individual growth. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, what we could do with that, not knowing what that was or what that circumstance was, I don't want to invent things I don't understand. But it's Paul telling him what he should attend to, he should be definite. Remember the, uh, the, the teaching in James 3 about who is wise and understanding among you, and it gives you the kind of wisdom that comes from above. And it talks about, you know, it's pure, it's peaceable, and then it says it's open to reason. But at the end of the list it says it's free from uncertainty and insincerity. We want to have the kind of Christians where every one of you knows the scriptures from top to bottom, side to side, Knows the length, the breadth, the depth, the height of the love of our God. You know all about it. You know how wrong that poor benighted soul is. You know how erroneous it is. But you didn't just jump into their business. You became the better person knowing what you know about this person. Timothy's becoming better. Practice these duties. Devote yourself. to them. Devote yourself to them. You know how scripture tells us to do certain things, tells us to do certain things. It rarely tells us, I mean, he's an apostolic delegate, he has to command and teach these things, but he's got to, Christianity is what the work of God's Holy Spirit in us does when we devote ourselves to it, to hearing these things as immediate souls with an immediate person in front of us we've got to love devote yourself so that all may see your progress do so you attend to the reading you don't neglect the public reading preaching teaching the gifts take heed to yourself verse 16, and to your teaching. If you go through this again, notice how personal it is that it's about making Timothy a good Christian. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Just like it told us back in chapter 2, to pray for those who have watch over us, that we would have a certain kind of lifestyle so that because God desires all men to be saved. Whatever you however you view the extent of that verse. Whatever the case, it's evangelistic. Whatever the case, your actual immediate life successfully lived is very healthy for the body of believers. That other people can see your progress, And you can save your hearers because you showed that it was lived. Now, some of you, I've been in discussions with any number of you, a lot of you, most of you. We probably don't agree. We're one of those churches that are miraculously held together on probably love, because we certainly aren't held together by some statement of faith. And I know who's right and who's wrong. But... You want to ask yourself, if I were to pay heed, if my teaching, if my thoughts, my ideas about Christianity was so good, what has it made me? Has it made me loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, self-controlled? Has it made me quiet and tranquil? What has it made me? If I pay heed to myself and to my teaching and hold to that, Will it bring about my own salvation and the salvation of the people that hear me? Now, each thing here, you know, maybe because it, it's you, you could write this off as saying, you know, get a new hammer; everything looks like a nail, you know. Um, and once you get yourself caught up, I, I may be caught up in the sense of I talked to Jake about existentialism and Christianity, and you know, good existentialism, not. French existentialism. But um, that's what I'm thinking about a lot, ladies, about the immediate nature of life. There is nothing but the immediate. So they go into chapter five, you say, it's only halfway down the page, Evan, and you've got ten minutes. I'm an expert, I'm a pro. I know what I'm doing. Quit talking about knowing what you're doing, get on with the text. Do not rebuke an older man, see? (laughs) You wanted me to go on, and you just got reprimanded. But exhort him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. Now, it's kind of a general thing, but it's a general thing of how you face a person in front of you. I hope that nobody creates a website called For Older Christian Brethren where their motto is, as we would a father. And try to have a series of blog posts about what older men need in understanding and so forth and so on. I want you, next time you're with an older man, to have the verse go through your mind and say, yeah, there's a respect a kind of thing that I, I don't have a freedom in rebuke that I have, but it's the man in front of me. If you take anything away from this evening, take away the sense of immediacy. Overquoted quoted P.J. O'Rourke line, everyone wants to save the world, no one wants to help mom do the dishes. The dishes are right in front of you, mom's in front of you. The brother, the younger brother, the older women like mothers, the younger women like sisters, you've got an obligation that how I'm supposed to be breathing in this community. Because every one of us fit this relationship, one aspect of it, to each one of us. Then there's some church instructions next. Honor widows who are real widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. What did it just tell you? It just said, the person for whom... These things are more immediate than for the church. The more immediate obligation should be met. The family should take care of the real, the family should take care of the widow. They have a religious duty to it. Before the church has a religious duty to it. I know the evangelical church these days it's 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 so afraid that the liberals will catch them with their pants down because back in the day back when the you know doctrine mattered um you know fundamentalist Christians were more right than the the liberals coming out of Princeton or wherever they were coming out of and but the liberals had the social gospel and they were out there doing good for their fellow man all over the world. That was their kind of mission field. And the fundamentalists were still, you know, preaching the gospel and the sawdust trail and singing Just As I Am one more time and getting people saved. But really, really, there was no social action in any church I grew up in, ever. But nowadays, the guys with the knit caps on the back of their heads, they... uh, They really do in the evangelical church. There's a number of churches in Moscow that have huge social action institutions. Uh, It's amazing. And we're we're doing it out of desperation. We don't want to be called unloving, And I think it's nice to do. Fine. But the scriptures here is really actually teaching us how not to be involved in certain widows' lives. Honor the widows who are real widows. If anybody has family living, guess who takes care of her? not the church. Don't rush in there with a church program. Let the family pick it up. Verse 5, she who is a real widow and is left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Whereas she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now it warns you that there's some kind of (coughs) complete devotion that a real widow who has no family gives over to God in seeking God in the matter and the church is supposed to be very responsive to them. But it calls the others who get those benefits or for whom real life benefits are still existing, family, (coughs) Etc., <coughs> they think naturally of their gains in life that they could have vacations, boyfriends, you know, whatever else. I say boyfriends because it goes into that. Command this so that they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his own family, he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we're not just telling the widow. We're not just telling the widow, hey, can't do anything. It's your family's responsibility. Work that out. We're telling the family to take your immediate responsibility seriously. You're worse than an unbeliever if you don't. Then he gives the standards. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Not less than 60. But she's 50. I'm sorry. St. Paul said not less than 60, because as soon... We'd love to have our religion be a little bit less than immediate. The church can do these good things, but once the widow is given over to us where she needs it absolutely, and the church is her, she's continuing in her prayers with supplications night and day, she's uh, 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 having a ministry in that. Um, that's a lawnmower. <laughs> the people on the interwebs—they won't know, you know. They, um, we're trying to find a way to keep what has tragically happened to the church. Look at what happened to the Roman Catholic Church. Just, you know, we're talking about guys in gold tiaras, you know, weighed down by. You know, some wonderful, beautiful buildings. Uh, my church was not designed by Michelangelo, and uh, that says a lot. But we know that becoming bigger than the immediate, not having. Does anybody really know what the Pope lives like and what he acts like? Because it's always on performance. He might be a sincere guy, but no way we could know. It's always as big as the world. He says something about global warming, and we've got to listen to him. Well, here, it's telling us to hold back from the widows at certain having been the husband of one wife of one husband. Okay, you know, your already questions are coming into your your own mind. But but what if she's she's sixty, but she's been married twice? I didn't write this. Okay? One husband. I know he loves to preach and he's really good with the word. But one of his seven kids is away from the Lord. What are you trying to tell me? I didn't write this. You have to decide whether or not your immediate life is going to be following what you want to do or your immediate life is going to be following what God wants you to do. And as part of the problem here is because your sense of love for self is such that it is more immediate than your sense of God's love for you. God's love for you is always seems to be expressed through the ages of the church and it comes trickling down to you through the various graces and you finally get some of it as a church member but If your walk with God was personal and actual and real, if your church was not the gracing agent, your walk with God was the gracing agent, it's even Stephen. Immediacy in both counts. But if he tells me I can't be a pastor if my kids are away from the Lord, that's the way it is. If he tells me a church should not enroll a widow if she had more than one husband, that's the way it is. And she must be well attested for her good deeds. Because what if she had one husband? She is 62, but she was just a biatch. And there's the worst woman, you know, you knew she was just awful. Never did anything for any, but she's good deeds, one who has brought up children, her children all hate her, shown hospitality, now nobody wanted to go over, washed the feet of the saints, relieved the afflicted, devoted herself to doing good in every way, You've got, I know a few women like that. I know one widow. uh, We were praying for Tom Barry back in North Carolina, and he died. And his widow, I read a little bit of her letter to the church the other Sunday. She sent us another letter, uh, a real actual letter in the mail. Here it is, I don't know, three, four weeks since her husband died. Just a wonderful testimony of what she's been thinking about in the Lord since her husband has gone on to be with the Lord. She's a great godly woman. And she sent us a gift. She sent us, the big house, a gift. She devotes herself to doing good in every way. Now she doesn't need the church helping her because she's surrounded by her family. It's Rachel's dad, and brothers, everybody helping out there. She's in Fat City. But these are the rules. The church should not be... This is. Enrolling a widow, that means supporting her like a nun. She's like a religious employee of the church. This is the qualities you have to be. Otherwise, you're just being nice to bad people, which is fine. If you want to be nice to bad people, that's a, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be. But it's not, that's the duty of your heart immediately. The church should not be burdened with it. It's not what the church is about but refuse. Oh, I like that word. We started late, so I have a couple of minutes. Refuse to enroll younger widows, but their husband just died. For when they grow wanton, I mean, what a word to use. <laughs> wanton, and it means it too. The word there means uh, got the sexiness going on. They want it. against Christ, they desire to marry. Oh yeah, see. So. Because they're young, their self-indulgence comes to the fore. They still have something in their life besides this. And they incur condemnation for having violated their first pledge, which suggests to us that this nunnery thing, this this nun thing for the church was uh, 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 an official, a uh, pledged situation, that that if you enrolled a, a, a younger widow for her to marry some guy, she'd have to violate her uh, vows essentially to the church. Besides this, they learn to be idlers, gadding about from house to house. Great word, use it in a sentence. Gadding about. That means wandering. I mean, just out visiting my girlfriends on my little smartphone, chatting up everything, not really accomplishing anything. But not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. In other words, not living out the life that was encouraged last week. Let a woman learn in that tranquility, with all submissiveness, let her find the home. What she should do to solve this problem, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, rule their households, and give the enemy no occasion to revile us. That's what he says in Titus when he talks about the older women teaching the younger women. In case you're unfamiliar with that, um, he, Talks about the older women training the younger women to love their husbands and children, their homes, to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be discredited. Here, give the enemy no occasion to revile us. Our lives in the immediate, if we find the tranquility of Christ that we are brought to by the grace of God in our lives, we are having, going to have far, far more effect on the other saints that we're trying to teach because everyone wants peace. You've heard me say it before. That's the chief end of man is to get peace. You've got it. You've practiced it. The women are encouraged to quit being enrolled in special offices. They have no business being in. They should get put back where, the, where they need to be, married, bearing children, in such a way, in such a tranquility, that they don't give the enemy anything evil to say. It says here, For some have already strayed after Satan. Man, you can understand why some people think Paul is a little bit uh, overmuch. I like him, you know, uh, but uh, because he's more important than I am. Some have already strayed after Satan. Remember those doctrines about not getting married? Those were satanic, pretentious lies. Paul says, no, 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 no. Why don't you get married? Quit being a church bum. Living off the goods of the church, being a busybody, why don't you learn to run your life? Learn to run your immediate life. Not the fate of darkest Africa, your immediate life. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her assist them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may assist those who are real widows. It frees the church up to do what is the immediate responsibility of the church at the church level that only the corporate can because the individual can't. There is no family. When you think about what, if it's an axis you can think along, thinking about what we are to um, apply a particular verse to. Is it to me? Me with my name attached to it? Is it to us, the believers? Is it to Israel? Is it Who is it to? I have a quote here on the side from Corinthians, which echoes what he says. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. They cannot exercise self-control. So he's talking largely about encouraging them to marry is something that if they are pointless, you know, self-indulgent, wanton individuals that have got those urges, um, they should find the path for it their immediate responsibility is to put that horniness inside marriage it's better to marry than to burn so you, if you've got a jonesing going on for guys get married make him happy but it's a matter of immediacy how do I live with this meal in front of me How do I live with the wife, the husband, whatever it is I've got, my lack of wife, husband? I solve the immediate. Leave the less immediate things to less immediate powers. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you for this pleasant evening. In your son's name, amen.